Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It is Monday, September 14th, 2020, 49 days until Election Day, depending on how you count on it. I'm going 49 days. That's kind of misleading, though. I'm doing a countdown journal in my newsletter. I think some of you know. And every day we count down. But it's somewhat misleading, of course, because early voting starts in just a few days in this country. We don't have an election day anymore. And I think that's part of the the issue of getting our heads wrapped around what's going on, that the election goes on for so long. And then, of course, it's probably going to extend past election day. So uh, there, there may be some people who continue to think, you know, well, is there going to be some sort of an October surprise or something that's going to happen in the last two weeks of the election? Well, yeah, that was the old model, because now the you know, the September surprise is the new October surprise because so many people are actually now voting. Um, in case you don't subscribe to uh, to my newsletter, Morning Shots, I, I I speculate about the the possibility that maybe after being told for four years that nothing matters, that maybe some things do matter. The number that really jumped out at me over the weekend was from this ABC Ipsos poll that found by I think two to one margin that Americans think that Joe Biden has more respect for the military, our soldiers, uh, than Donald Trump. Now, that's a a stunning number uh, when you think about how aggressively Donald Trump has tried to wrap himself around the military. But what it suggests is that Atlantic story uh, by Jeffrey Goldberg and the fallout from that might actually have made a difference. Also, Donald Trump right now is 30 points underwater when it comes to approval ratings on the coronavirus, uh, only 35% of Americans think that he's doing a good job. And again, that kind of suggests that that events are making a, a difference. And I just want to run through some of these poll numbers that we're getting as well. And look, I, I'm, I'm one of those who I, I don't want people to be cocky about anything. No, nobody should be cocky in, in any way whatsoever. But the folks at NBC kind of make a, an in, interesting point about the poll numbers that, you know, there's something kind of familiar about these recent poll numbers. Uh, They mostly have Trump's numbers in the low 40s, particularly in the battleground states. So it's Arizona, Biden 47, Trump 44, Minnesota, Biden 50, Trump 41. Uh, Another Minnesota poll, uh, Biden 50, uh, Trump 41 again, same thing. One of those is the New York Times poll. The other one's CBS poll. Uh, Nevada, uh, uh, Biden 46, Trump 42, New Hampshire, Biden 45, Trump 42, Wisconsin, Biden 48, uh, Trump 43. So again, there's the pattern, 41, 41, 42, 42, 43, 44. And they ask, what would you say if, if you saw any other incumbent like, you know, no one, Democrat Heidi Heitkamp or Republican Dean Heller with those types of numbers, you would think they're, they're losing this election. Uh, the one exception to the low 40s, of course, is this Fox News poll, which had uh, Trump at 46 percent. But I'd argue that that was uh, something of something of of an outlier. So our, our guest today is columnist, pundit and author Sharish Date, who joins us again on the Bulwark podcast uh, podcast podcast. Hey, welcome back, Sharish. Hey, thanks for having me, Charlie. And congratulations on the book, Useful Idiot, came out a couple of weeks ago. So we'll talk about the the usefulness of uh, of the idiot and she. Can we talk about what happened last night, though? Can we just dwell sure. on that for a moment? <laughs> I mean, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, it's, we, 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 really, we have a great piece uh, by Tim Miller about this maskless rally in Nevada, in, in, in Henderson, Nevada. And, and there is, you know, once again, you can get... So numbed, it's so normal that you have the president who flouts the law. Who just, I mean, and, and very clearly, the governor of Nevada calls him out on this. Uh, this is in violation of the law. This puts people at, at risk. And and you know, so it, it, it's the what nine hundred and fifty nine thousandth outrage. But I did find this little segment kind of interesting. Uh, let's play a little soundbite from the president of the United States last night. Pathetic Joe, and he's a pathetic human being to allow that to happen. Here's the problem. He doesn't even know it happened. I don't don't think. I think he has no idea. But he's a pathetic human being to let that happen, where they put an ad like that, where I'm standing over graves, and then they said, he said this. 
with no sources, no nothing. They got nothing. And I have 25 real witnesses with the names, with everything, saying it never happened. And they put an ad like that up. They're a disgrace. But you know the good part? Now I can be really vicious. I can be really vicious. And we'll start by saying, we're going to start by saying that the Democrats are trying to rig this election because it's the only way they're going to win. Okay, you have any reaction to that? Because I think it's it's, it's very rare that you have a politician who says that, that I, I am now going to become vicious. Yeah, well, he's been vicious all along, so there's, <laughs> that's, that's kind of silly to say. He's been calling Joe Biden senile. He's been calling him, you know, worrying about his, uh, saying that he's not healthy, that he's going to have to resign, that someone else is going to have to take over, Kamala Harris now. You know, what's interesting, I was um, traveling with the president that day when that Atlantic story came out. And so we went to uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania. He did his rally. And then they sent Mark Meadows back in the on, on the way home. And he was kind of sounding the reporters out. Well, you know, about this Atlantic story, you know, the president denies it. And and uh, this is absolutely not true. I've seen his commitment to the military on and on and on. And so we asked him, well, why don't you send the president back then? I mean, what, what good does your saying the president denies it? And interestingly, after we landed, now he never does this, he never does this, but after we landed, he came back under the wing and went on, I timed it, it was a seven minute tirade about Jeffrey Goldberg, about the uh, Atlantic Magazine being a third rate magazine that he doesn't read and on and on and on and on, made up a whole bunch of stuff. But it told me that they're really, really worried about this. And I think we see that again last night with the, you know, with the stuff about Biden and the ad. It's uh, it's hurting them. And as you pointed out that poll, well, there was another one earlier in military times yes. right, where mm-hmm. he's actually behind Biden in terms of active duty military. Now, granted, these are um, this is largely I'm going to say the career military, the officer corps, uh, the enlisted personnel who are, in, who are in it for the long haul. They're not in for you know one or two stints. But still, that's a big deal. He he was ahead by, I want to say, over 20 points against Hillary Clinton in that poll four years ago. So yeah, there's a significant amount of erosion. And this is this is part of the Republican base, right? I mean, well, and and th- th- this is very much part of the Republican base. And this is why he's so upset about it, because he understands this goes right at his vulnerability. It, it, it's one thing to say, well, he's, you know, he's racist, he's sexist, he's xenophobic, because yeah, that's already baked in. But this is going after his strength. I mean, there's two different strategies, right? You go after someone's weakness or you go after their, go right at their strength. His support for the military is at the core. So obviously he realizes that that if this gets any traction at all, he's in a lot of trouble. But what what is interesting is that after four years of nothing ever moving the needle, there is that feeling that this did. Do you have any sense why this is different? I think because for people who are paying attention, okay, so people who are paying, uh, reading things and uh, who've been remarking on the, the president's uh, inability to lose his supporters, et cetera, et cetera. One, I, I think that's kind of overblown. I mean, a president with a good economy would be normally at 55%. Easy. Okay? Yeah. And yeah. so if he simply just locked himself in the basement in the White House and they'd taken away his phone for three years, he'd have been a high 50s probably, just saying nothing. The fact that he was not is is all on him because of who he is as a person. So when you look deeper into those uh, th- that military number, people in the military already know that he was lying about all kinds of things. They know they don't have brand new ships and planes. They know they don't have brand new, you know, uh, rifles, and and they knew that they weren't really out of ammunition, as he said. So, uh, and they know that they personally are being hurt by his raiding the construction fund to build his wall. They know that their schools on base have not been built because that money has gone to the southern border instead. So already there had been this erosion and this thing is, you know, it, it, it just was salt in the wound because they've they seen already that he's dishonest and, and that the dishonesty was at their expense. And now it shows that not only is he dishonest, he's, he's actively disparaging them. And I think that's going to hurt. Let me tell you something that I saw. Um, about this, and I, I haven't figured this out. And I, I think you're you're almost you're, you're not almost clear, but you are you you are right. But on the disparagement of the military, you know the you know losers and suckers uh, argument, 
He, of course, is saying that there's no source whatsoever. In fact, there's many sources of the Atlantic, obviously, reported. It. And then one news outlet after another, including Fox News, then confirmed that 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 reporting. But what I saw on social media uh, among Republicans, this would be not, not not the Trump base, but maybe the softer Republicans was, you know, yeah, this is a hit job. But, you know, this kind of reminds me of what uh, what he said about John McCain, and it resonated. It was that echo from John McCain. So is this this massive loop from 2015, where he says, uh, you know, he's a hero, but he's a hero because he was captured. And I like people who weren't captured. Everybody remembers that. A lot of us thought that was going to be the end. Republicans shrugged. They accepted it. He went on to you know get the nomination, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But it's still hanging out there. And so when people heard these other allegations. It rang true. Exactly. And and I and, and, and I and, and I did pick that up, which is interesting that that some of this stuff is latent. It's kind of like it's out there, people know it. And so that when you know you have a new development, it 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 has that that sort of effect. Same thing with, with the with the Woodward book, you know, when he says that, uh, you know, I was downplaying it or et cetera, et cetera. Well, people kind of know that that's true. I mean, they watched it in real time. So it, it, it rings true to them. So let's, let's shift to the, the other thing that seems to be making a difference or might be the coronavirus numbers, you know, 35% approval, 65% disapproval. These are horrific. These are toxic numbers for Trump. And right now we're 50 days away from the election. The Woodward book is being officially released this week, right? Those were leaks last week. Right. And so there's a lot of focus on it. At the same time, sometime this week, by the end of the week, we're going to hit that 200,000 mark uh, of deaths with the coronavirus. Right. And then the president. And this week, what, I mean, if you're Donald Trump, you want to talk about anything other than the coronavirus, right? I mean, you do not want the focus to be on the coronavirus this week, next week. He goes to Henderson, Nevada. And he holds a rally that everybody in the world is looking at and going, are you kidding me that you are having this, you know, all these people packed in, no social distancing, no pretext of social distancing, no masks, no nothing, just the pure F you, I'm not taking the coronavirus. You know what I'm saying? It's just like, right. what's going on here? I wish I knew. And that one is, I mean, that is really mystifying that they could not find an outdoor venue. Now, I, I know for their optics, they like to hold things at sunset because, you know, the light is better and they get the plane behind them. When that went away, uh, they did what they could. They scrambled to find something for them to do. And maybe this was all they could find, you know, in the, in the Las Vegas metropolitan area. But, you know, I'm, I'm surprised, you know, they didn't call it the Herman Cain Memorial Rally because it's oh, ridiculous yeah. that that they went back to that after that utter disaster in Tulsa. And, you know, he, he's kind of stuck with this now. I mean, 35 percent. What amazes me about that number is how are there 35 percent of this country that still thinks he did a good job with this? I mean, this is ridiculous. You know, I, I, you know, this I've done articles about this. This was in the, in the book that had we treated this the way Germany treated this instead of 200,000, we'd be at maybe 45,000. That's how poorly this country has handled this, and it starts at the top. Angela Merkel didn't make fun of the virus. She didn't call it a hoax. She didn't say that it was going to go away on its own, didn't say that you know, it was not as bad as the flu, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, leadership matters, and it, the president has decided pretty early on that he was not going to lead on this issue, that he was instead going to wish it away, will it away, and otherwise it was going to hurt his economy that he'd been running on. So yeah. here we are. Yeah, and, and the panic that he didn't want to cause, obviously, was the panic in the markets. Uh, but uh, I, I'd urge people to read Tim Miller's piece in The Bulwark. He says, look, we're, you know, we, we, we tend to get numbed about this, but seen with fresh eyes, this Henderson rally was a was truly a shocking and unimaginably wheels off wheels off undertaking, given that it came amid a pandemic that is killing a thousand Americans a day and with wildfires making much of the West Coast uninhabitable. Speaking of the wildfires, that's that's another one. I mean, you you, you step back from the moment that we are in, you know, the West Coast is burning. We have a pandemic about to kill 200,000 Americans. The economy is still shaky. We have urban unrest. Uh, this is not the environment for a president who promised to make America great. Uh, this is not the per ideal uh, uh, environment for him uh, seven weeks out from an election. Is no, it? this is this is horrible. And 
I'm, uh, and again, what amazes me is not that he's he's behind in these polls. It, it what amazes me is he's not at twenty five percent or thirty percent. <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, he has because of him the economy is bad. And by the way, although he wanted to take credit for everything, and you know, as you know, if you're in Wisconsin, I mean, the manufacturing sector was really hurt by his trade war. I mean, we were in a manufacturing recession in February before all this started because of his trade war. Um, I went out to Wisconsin to um, to the Harley Davidson uh, mm-hmm. plant last year, and I was amazed at how many of the people I spoke to in the parking lot after their shift were were done with Trump. Really? Said, yes, um, that really shocked me. And, and again, now these are um, these are union workers, relatively high wage, a lot more engineers. So uh, I mean, uh, this is not the the you know the construction worker making. You know, twenty-five dollars an hour on a, on a piece basis kind of person. This is a these are largely professionals or highly skilled blue collar, and they they knew damn well that their incomes were at risk and in some cases going down because of Donald Trump and his trade war. And I was, I mean, I, I was really amazed, and I wrote about that last year that he's bleeding support from the people that he needed it most, and that was before this hit, right? And so things were not great, despite his claims before. The, the pandemic and his management or lack of management of it has only made it worse. And he, there's no way he can turn this around. The numbers, yeah. it, they, they could be at quarter million by the time of election day. So th- th- this will seem like a, a, a digression at, at, at the moment, but have you seen the movie, The Social Dilemma on Netflix at all? I have not. You no. heard, I would strongly urge everyone to 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 watch. You, you, you think that we have these alternative reality bubbles out there and the social media has contributed to it. Uh, yes, all true. Uh, you watch this and you go, it's way worse than you thought. It's really, it is really bad. And you, you ask, how do you get 35%? You realize that you have 35 to 40% of America that really is living down a rabbit hole. And yeah. I mean, that's, and that's the phrase, how the algorithms of social media will draw you into these rabbit holes. And you have a completely different perception of the universe. And I, you know, you spend any time on conservative media. And, and I will tell you, one of the dangers that we have right now uh, you know, with all the talk about, you know, the Democrats are planning a coup or they're doing these various things is as far as I can tell, uh, among Trump's strongest supporters, there is a moral certainty that he's going to win reelection. Not that he's going to not, not just win reelection, that Trump is going to win big. And so if he loses, it will come as a huge shock to them and they will be very open to ideas that no, this was stolen. This was fraudulent. So, it's uh, d- don't don't expect them uh, to go quietly into the good night. All right. In terms of, of turning it around, um, I, I I think that the evidence for the moment suggests that his one big gambit of turning this into a referendum on law and order has failed. But I would also just caution I, I this New York Times Siena poll has some little bit of warning signs in there that Biden still is not out of the woods when it comes to this law and order issue. This, uh, the, 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 the poll that, that finds that, and this is, this is the analysis from Nate Cohn from the, the New York Times, is that, is, that, is that on the broad issue of crime and policing, there are, there's a large number of his own supporters who are soft, people who could flip uh, more uh, soft Biden support on this issue than Trump support. And and also, there's just kind of a remarkable, I mean, not remarkable, but I mean, just as a, again, as a warning flag, the number of people who actually do believe that Biden uh, wants to defund the police or that he has not really addressed this question strongly enough. So uh, Nate, Nate Cohen is out there. I mean, the, the Times folks are out there saying, you know, th- he Biden still could lose on this issue. But every week that goes by, and tell me whether you agree with this, where we're, we're talking about the coronavirus, or we're talking about the disrespect for the military, every week that goes by makes that harder and harder for Trump to move to move those numbers to go from forty-one to forty-seven percent or whatever. Right, and 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 for the record, I, I don't mean to suggest that he cannot win the election. He absolutely can win the election. Yeah. I think we've seen you know four years ago that things happen. Uh, I don't know. For, uh, for example, what the president and uh, and the attorney general are planning 
in terms of uh, late September, October surprises. We've seen that they're willing to tear gas people and to mm. beat them in order to go do a photo op in front of a church that, by the way, the president, I don't think has ever set foot in. So, <laughs> you know, um, let alone his unfamiliarity with the way you hold the Bible. But leave that aside. I don't know what they're what they're up to. And he has shown already that he is absolutely willing to use every single lever of power at his disposal. So there's that. I don't know what Vladimir Putin has up his sleeve. Last time it was dumping all the, the, the WikiLeaks material day after day after day after day and it being taken up as proof of corruption of Hillary Clinton. I don't know that uh, Jim Comey is going to come back and release some stuff at the very end, right? I guess we can rule that one out. But yeah. so a lot can but happen. Something like the, well, the, the Dunham report that they obviously had wanted right. to. Right. So a, a lot so can is happen. So Dunham or Durham? I, it's Durham, I believe. Yeah. Durham, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, the, which I, which I don't think, I mean, that's one of the things that's going to get, you know, certain people in the right wing media very excited. I don't see it changing the dynamic of the election in any way. I agree. I, I think that's a, you know, that's a Fox News, Breitbart, uh, OA, OAN story and, and, and the rest of the world will kind of, you know, well, what's this? What do we care? And, and the fact that he's already complaining that it's not strong enough um, or it's not already <laughs> out there suggests that maybe, you know, there's not going to be very much to it. But in terms of turning around the whole story of how he's handled the country, no, he can't possibly do that. I mean, that that part is baked in, right? I mean, um, the jobs are only going to get worse because they didn't follow up with the with the unemployment relief. Um, so, yeah. The That's amazing to me, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that was, they didn't That they did not figure out a way to get that done. Right. And that to- that tells me, and I could very well be wrong, but that what I read from that was that people like Tom Cotton and Ted Cruz and uh, Josh Hawley think that Trump's going to lose. And they think that the way forward is going to be uh, at least talking about fiscal conservatism. I think you're exactly right. I, right. I actually, that's variance. I think that's exactly right is because they need to start positioning themselves as being fiscal conservatives and they're already looking at 2024. Of course, it's going to be just ridiculous to listen to Republicans having gone through what we just went through. <laughs> should, should be, I mean, honestly, you know how how ridiculous is that? So over the weekend, I, actually, I wanted to go back to something you said before because, in, and this this is really important to understand that that there have been periods of time where the president actually, you know, is you know in the bunker, you know, is quiet, is is not in the spotlight, and that tends to be the period where his poll numbers go up, right? Absolutely. It's when he becomes front and center that that he he often gets himself in trouble. And of course, his narcissism means that he thinks that he needs to be front and center all the time. He thinks that it's a good idea to talk to Bob Woodward because he is the best communicator in the world. But I also think, again, because we're 50 days to the election, the, the way in which he's positioning himself, you know, describing himself as vicious or his obvious enthusiasm for extrajudicial killings that came right. out over the week where he's talking about, right. yes, we need to have retribution. Yes. You know, when, when marshals shoot and kill a guy, you know, whoa, um, that in a normal presidential election, a confident incumbent running for reelection would be trying to present a kinder, gentler face or, uh, appeal to your suburban housewives or whatever it is that he talks about doing. Uh, he seems to be doing exactly the opposite. I'm yeah. vicious. I like it when the cops kill people and I'm going to hold these massive rallies w- with nobody wearing masks. Really? Yeah. Okay. So the the time that he won in 2016, he absolutely listened to the advice yes. of Kellyanne Conway and Stephen Bannon, who told him, shut up. You need to be quiet. You need to read off this teleprompter and not one word other than what's on this teleprompter. And on the teleprompter, there'll be, look at WikiLeaks, look at the stuff, look at the, what came out, look at Hillary's speeches that she gave and all this other stuff. And then they went into, and China trade deals and this and all the, you know. The, People forget this. Right? So for the entire month of October, he shut up, except for what was on the teleprompter. He stopped tweeting by and large. Not, you know, not completely, but he cut way back on tweeting. He stopped giving interviews. Right. So yes. he was basically as programmed a candidate as Donald Trump is capable of being. And that is how he won because and that is how his numbers slowly went back up because the focus was not on him. 
he was just a, a boring guy reading off the teleprompter for, for most people. His fans, of course, loved it. Um, and the focus instead was on Hillary and what, what was new coming out that morning or evening from the from the WikiLeaks dumps. There was actual discipline. There was message discipline. And what I see now is no message discipline. Okay, speaking of teleprompters, since we've been talking a lot about Donald Trump, uh, what is going on with Joe Biden? Uh, he didn't campaign at all on Saturday. He has not gone to the West Coast. He sounds like he's giving a speech on climate change today from Delaware. And there is that weird thing where he re he reads from the teleprompter when he's answering questions. Yeah, uh, I'll be What's honest. I have, I have not followed that at all. Okay, I haven't so yeah. on the president. I mean, I see the the campaign, the, the Trump campaign, tweeting about it and stuff. And you know, there's so much to the tweet about that I I don't have the time to worry about it all. But yeah, he has definitely taken a you know a we're winning, let's not uh, fumble this away strategy. And I don't know if that's wise. Um, but he's got experienced people that have been through a primary where no one gave him a chance. I mean, I, you know, uh, I, I remember seeing him in, in, uh, where was it? It was in Nevada. And I thought, well, this will be interesting. I'll watch Joe Biden for the last time. I'll, I'll walk the into it you know, because he was going to lose and that would be that. And, and then he turns it around and gets the nomination. So I don't know. What's up with, well, uh, what, with that? My, my optimistic view of this would be that they recognize that perhaps he has not been completely prepped. Some of his media interviews have not been, I would say, you know, um, you know, at his at his A game. And so maybe what they're doing right now is they're preparing him for the debate. They're preparing him to answer questions that he obviously needs to answer. Um, and, and the whole thing about the teleprompter is an attempt to have more message discipline, which is all a good thing. And so it, it really comes down to ankle biting. OK, before we get into some of the more substantive stuff, uh, this Michael Bloomberg thing, I think, is fascinating uh, that he's dumping one hundred million dollars into one state, Florida. Now, yeah. hey, you know, 100 million here, 100 million there. For a while, it adds up to real money. That's a right. lot of money. It is. And, you know, I spent 20 years uh, of my career in Florida. Um, and that gets you a lot of TV. It gets you a lot of get out the vote. Now, how much getting out there is versus calling people up and, and haranguing them till they mail their <laughs> ballot back, uh, which is probably better and easier anyway. You know, that can absolutely move some numbers because um, the Democratic Party of Florida sure doesn't have that money. And I don't know the DNC and the Biden campaign have enough to rebuild all the infrastructure that they've lost over the years from from uh, the Obama 2012 campaign. Now, interestingly, I remember when when Bloomberg kind of under the radar poured in tens of millions of dollars into the House races in California. You remember that in Southern yeah, 2018, California, yeah. right? In 20 and basically helped flip the House. And really, nobody saw that coming. The Republicans sure didn't see it coming. And the, but in the final weeks, there were just a barrage of ads. A lot of them having to do with guns. A lot, you know, the things that uh, Bloomberg cares about. And sure enough, they picked up Orange County. I grew up in. I mean, I went to high school in Orange yeah. County, California, and to see that place now, basically, you know, all uh, Democratic. Uh, members of Congress is is kind of stunning. So I, yeah, he says he's going to spend that here. I don't know what else he's going to spend, um, because really this is this is like monopoly money for him. This, he he this, does wait until the last minute to make these decisions, though. Right, and the less he talks about it, probably the better, because it'll, in terms of you know not having the Republicans able to counter, because you know they they were outraised. That is true by the Biden campaign, but they're going to have plenty of money. This is not going to be about money this election. So. No, I, I don't. I don't think so. But you know, I, I have to say, I, even though Michael Bloomberg is kind of a jerk, I, I'm not. A, I'm not a big fan. He's very, very smart. And this Florida move is really interesting to me. I mean, it, look, it's obvious. It's a lot of money. It's obvious that Florida is important. Twenty nine electoral votes, but but also, I think it's subjectively important as well because, as as you know. Um, election night's going to be fraught. So unlike right. a lot of the other crucial states, Florida is expected to report its results early on election night because yeah, and and because the results are going to be slow. I think there's a real possibility, and I've talked about this before, that Trump's going to try to declare victory on election night and just throw everything into chaos. But if Biden wins Florida early, everything changes, doesn't it? I mean, think Absolutely. about it. I mean, he, he, you know, he's won the election. But also he shaped the narrative for the night. He shaped what all the headlines are going to be the next day. It becomes much more difficult for Trump to create his own weather you know, pattern here. Of course, he might try anyway, yeah. but that that's a fundamental game changer. In fact, it's hard to imagine 
a state that will have more psychological impact on election night than Florida. In fact, there, it's not. You can't. No, that's yeah. absolutely right. And I think that is a big part of it is that if uh, if the president loses Florida, it, the game's over, you know, and uh, everything else is how big the margin is going to be in the rest of the country. Um, and remember, he did, the, Donald Trump did not win by Florida by that much last time around. It's not like this is a safe Republican state. You know, uh, 2000, everyone remembers that. But ever since then, starting with the election after Jeb Bush's reelect, every single election has been fairly close, you know, with the yeah. one exception of Charlie Crist uh, beating uh, Jim Davis. Um, but so, you know, this is never going to be eight, nine points. But if these things, and as you said, they, all the absentee ballots, all the, the mail ballots are counted beforehand. And so yes. those results yeah. are reported first. You know, we can start looking at Pasco County. Let's see how it's trending. I mean, if if, uh, if Biden is, is losing that by only, um, you know, 10 percentage points or so, you know, he's probably won the state. So, you know, th there's all kinds of things we can look at and we'll know about them early. And yeah, that'll take a lot of, of the wind out of uh, the president's sails if if it looks like he's lost Florida. Yeah, I I just want to uh, just highlight uh, very, very briefly, of course, but when I, people may have seen what's going on here in Wisconsin, um, and maybe we'll get an answer later this week, but the Wisconsin State Supreme Court has just thrown the whole mail-in balloting process here into absolute chaos. It's kind of hard to overstate it. They came up with a surprise order late last week, and I'm sure you saw this, uh, blocking the mailing of any absentee ballots uh, in order to, you know, un until it decides whether the Green Party should be on the ballot. If, if they stop that, it means that every county is going to have to reprint all of their ballots. They will have to reprint 2.3 million ballots. It's, it, under law, they're supposed to go out this week uh, to, you know, the, the, the first group is supposed to go out this week. Uh, for their federal guidelines also saying that you know, overseas ballots have to go out. So you have to come up with the money, the time, the delay. It will be a real mess. And it is interesting that the court would have intervened. What's weird about this is the Green Party here is represented by a Republican law firm that has close ties to the Republican Party. So we kind of know where that's going. And also, they waited for weeks to bring this particular challenge. Uh, the Green Party could have easily gotten itself on the ballot by just filing an affidavit about an address. No big deal. They, the election commission said, file the affidavit, we'll fix it, we'll put you on the ballot. The Green Party did absolutely nothing, didn't respond, then goes out, gets this Republican law firm. They wait until the last minute, go to the state Supreme Court, and on a four to three majority, they basically throw a bomb into the middle of the entire mail-in balloting system in Wisconsin. So, you know, if you think this is going to be messy, it's just, I, I, this is one of those moments where you go, what what are people capable of doing? Well, keep an eye on Wisconsin. Right. And it, it's it's being exacerbated from the guy in the White House. He claims yep. that mail balloting in and of itself is, is fraudulent, when, of course, he has voted by mail twice. Uh, from an address, by the way, and they're, put, and they're pushing it. Yeah, <laughs> right. Of course, and it, from an address that he doesn't really have a legal right to live in. I mean, he pre promised uh, the town of Palm Beach that he would not, no one would live at Mar-a-Lago, and here he is using it as a as a legal residence uh, and voting from it. So you have that. You have his coming out saying now several times that if I don't win, it's because it, I was cheated out of it essentially, yeah. right? The, that it's rigged against me. Well, you know, come on, this is absurd. And um, what people will listen to him, the same ones, I guess, who think that he's done a great job with the pandemic. So we may have 35% of the people uh, thinking that the election was stolen from him if he loses. And that's cool. kind of dangerous. Absolutely. No, I, I think it's going to be more than 35%. And uh, they are, they are as I said before, because they absolutely are convinced that he's going to win. I get emails all the time saying, Charlie, you are delusional. You're believing the fake news. You know, everywhere I look, uh, there's you no know, signs and everything. And 
people in Wisconsin are, are saying, you know, the enthusiasm level is high. Well, it is in your base, but your base isn't big enough to win. This is part of the problem of this, this massive sorting out that we've done, that it's possible to be in these, these huge sort of mega bubbles where you do not know anyone who doesn't think like you. And this is a problem, honestly, for both sides. But for the Trump world right now, you know, they think that if there's a big boat parade, it means we're absolutely going to win. So election night could be kind of a shock to them. Okay, right. so you're, let's talk about your book for a minute, Useful Idiot. How yeah. Donald Trump killed the Republican Party with racism and the rest of us with coronavirus. So let's start off with, do we know that, Repu that Donald Trump killed the Republican Party? Well, it's not totally dead yet. Is right? the Republican Party dead? What do we mean by Republican Party? I mean, uh, one, I, I titled one of the chapters, you know, uh, the party okay. of Lincoln becomes the party of Trump because he essentially mm -hmm. did that. I mean, I, I, if you go and talk to RNC members who used to be kind of the mainstay uh, activists, many have been, been in there for decades and they were, they, they believed in Ronald Reagan. They believed in the sort of stuff that, you know, he talked about. That's all gone. And now we have a bunch of, uh, Trump enthusiasts. They're, it's a personality cult at the highest levels of the party. So what's going to happen if he loses, right? I mean, uh, do they do they immediately move on? Do they try to figure out what went mm -hmm. wrong? Do they do another autopsy? Do they just take the old autopsy they did in 2012 and kind of dust it off and say, yeah, we didn't do this. We should have. We let Donald Trump basically set it on fire, but it's still valid. Let's go back to this. And who exactly is they <laughs> when I say they will do this? Exactly. That's what I mean. I mean, I, I have no clue what happens next. And, you know, some people have said, you know, if Donald Trump loses, the, the 2024 nominee is going to be Donald Trump because he's he loves this and he's going to want to run again. And, you know, uh, then we're right back to where we were in 2015. Well, I think this is a point that we've made before. Trump doesn't go away. Trump and Trumpism do not go away. Um, the, the the transformation of the party in, in four short years is remarkable to me, you know, and right before we started this, we were talking about 2015. And if the Republican Party would have stood up to him, they could have put an end to this. If Rush Limbaugh would have, you know, said this guy's a phony, um, we, we can't go along with him. If he would have aborted that campaign on takeoff when it was the most vulnerable, this might have been different, but they didn't. But one of the things that, that, that struck me throughout 2015 and 2016 was that there were no Trumpists other than Donald Trump, at least initially, that the Republican Party might have gone along with him. But in terms of elected officials in the state of Wisconsin, there was not there was like one local village president who supported Trump. And that was it. And yet in four short years. The Trumpification of the Republican Party, the spread of mini Trumps, the, the the way in which they've not only adapted to him, but have become mimics of him, the way he's affected the language and the culture and the priorities has really been stunning. So th there's no going back, even if he is defeated. Yeah. Well, so you know, it, what was remarkable to me in, in that primary was you, know, you look at other primaries in both the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. When people drop out, they say, you know, I had a good run, but I'm I'm here for the party and I'm here for the nominee, right. whoever that is. And and you had people like Scott Walker, you had people like Rick Perry. When they dropped out, it was this man is a cancer on this country. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. Normal people, <laughs> normal. <laughs> that doesn't happen. And yet they turned around now and supported him. Why? And this is why I called the book The Useful Idiot, because there are a percentage of people within the Republican Party voting base mm -hmm. who are Trumpists, who are, and I don't know what that percentage is, right? And then you yeah. have those who got something out of this. And you have the uh, evangelical Christians who really, really wanted the judges that they thought were going to bring the country back to the 1950s. You've had you know, the business community uh, who wanted to roll back regulations. They got that. Not because Trump really knows that much about regulations, not that Trump knows much about judges. He doesn't know a damn thing. He was given a list. He says, fine. He sends them on to Mitch McConnell. Done. Um, and then, of course, the last person who sees him as a useful idiot is Vladimir Putin, who got exactly what he wanted. He wanted chaos. He wanted a mess. He wanted someone who's going to tear up the Atlantic Alliance, which the president has done his best to do. But it's it becomes so obvious that he won't even criticize Putin over, you know, the possibility of bounties on American soldiers' heads. So, um, 
people got something, that's why they're with him. And my big question is, what happens when they're not getting that from him anymore? You know, you know, when people, I talk to tons of people at Trump rallies, and what I hear so often is, I wish he wouldn't tweet. I wish he wouldn't mm-hmm. talk as much. Well, why are they saying that, right? I mean, if, if he's so great, why do, they, why do they want him to be quiet? Why are they trying to hide who he really is? And that's what we see when he tweets, who he really is. We see his actual person. We see when he goes off script, that's when we see the real Donald Trump, not when he's reading the stuff that someone else has written for him. So, you know, I wonder how many of those people who, when they no longer get what they wanted from him, will move on to the next thing, whatever that is. Well, and 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 for you know much of the anti anti Trump intelligentsia, I think it'll be a relief to have him not gone to, to be gone, so that they can you know go back to just being anti Biden. But to your point about the people who don't like the way he's tweeting, I think there's a large portion of 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 the Trump base that initially thought that they liked Trump in spite of the insults and the crudity and the you know the the, the tweets, but now it's become a feature. It's not a glitch anymore. They like him not in spite of, but because of the you know willingness to get in your face and say things that that upset people and that that trigger the libs so i don't know um where those people go but what is interesting is watching you know other republicans who have their eyes on 2024 try to imitate i mean you followed ted cruz's right uh twitter feed lately yeah Yeah. it's i I mean what does ted cruz want to be when he grows up uh yeah that's donald um, trump yeah, I mean, uh, and 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 Ted Cruz had possibly the most cogent and certainly most entertaining takedown of Donald Trump in the entire Republican oh, primary. Yeah. I mean, right? Well, uh, and Lindsey Graham. Right. Well, Ted Cruz went after him as a pathological liar, and when I say liar, I mean you could hook him up to a lie detector test, <laughs> yep, yep. and uh, at three different times a day, ask him the same question, he'll say three different things, and each time he'll think he's telling the truth. Right. That's stunning to go from that to my friend Donald Trump and he's really grown into office, blah, blah, blah. I mean, come on, man. I mean, what is this? I've said this before. He's a better man than I am because if somebody, you know, had said that my my wife was, uh, you know, my wife was ugly, my father had murdered Kennedy, uh, had pushed the National Enquirer to suggest that I was having affairs with multiple women, you know, called me a liar all those times. You know, I, it would probably take me a while to get over that and, and to yeah. forgive, but, you know, obviously Ted Cruz is a much better Christian than I am. So let's talk about your, your, your subtext. And you wrote about this for the bulwark as well. And I think you and I have a different point of view on this, but it, but, but it's, it, it's a complicated issue. And it's one that it's impossible not to wrestle with because this, as it the subhead is how Donald Trump killed the Republican party with racism and the rest of us with coronavirus. So let's talk about the racism because clearly Donald Trump, whether he is a racist or is not a racist, I personally think he is. But leaving that aside, because you can never know about one individual, right? He clearly believes that his base is racist. Otherwise, he would not be playing his race cards over and over and over again. He has a view of his voters, of conservative Republicans, that if he threatens them with Cory Booker coming into your neighborhood, that that will actually motivate them, which tells you about what he thinks about the Republican Party. Exactly. No, then that is so, so telling. I think he forgets that by the time the primaries are over in 2016, essentially over, he'd gotten what, 33, 35% of the vote, Mm -hmm. right? So um, had there been one person in Donald Trump, that one person would have won. I mean, I think that's that's pretty obvious. Right? Well, no, I I think in 2015, if there had been only Jeb Bush, and Donald Trump. Hey, this is ridiculous. Right. Jeb Bush would have won. Yeah. Ted, same you Turned can say about five or six of those people. Um, but here's the thing. I went to the the Iowa State Fair, and this is in the book, and I think I reported previously uh, for National Journal maybe. Um, and I listened to people at their little straw poll as they were – I was just resting. You know, It was hot, and I was in the shade. Mm-hmm. And I was listening to people talk about why they were going to uh, cast their little cr- uh, kernel of corn mm-hmm. for Donald Trump. And it was because – the illegals, when the illegals come here, their kids are citizens, right? So right. you got to send them back and you got to build that wall and you've got to make sure they don't come here. And, you know, Donald Trump's the only one, the only one who's, who, you know, who's got what it takes to do that. 
So I'm writing all this down, right? And I'm waiting for them to finish voting. And then I catch up with them and ask them, hey, you know, where are you from? And, and they were, you know, they're not very forthcoming with me. And I ask them, um, how important is illegal immigration in your views about Donald Trump? Because previously they said, oh, well, you know, he tells it like it is. He's a good businessman, et cetera, et cetera. And they kind of looked at him. No, not really. Not at all. Why? I said, come on. I mean, so they're they're embarrassed about why they're really supporting the man. And that hmm. told me volumes that there's a there's a percentage of this base. And that's what I think the, the Trump people were actually upfront about this. There's a shy Trump vote. Well, what are they shy about? Right. They're not shy about losing their jobs. They're, they're pretty open about that. They're not shy about, you know, putting uh, uh, Christian judges back on the court to make sure we get our country back. No, what they're shy about is that they want all these people coming into our country who are already here gone. And that's what's hidden. That's the stuff that in a politically correct America, you're not allowed to say, you know, the N word. You're not allowed to say um, that you don't want Mexicans coming in here. You know, that I think, and I don't know how big that percentage is, you know, and I don't think anyone knows that's I don't either. Poll. but that's that's a big deal because that right now was enough for donald trump to win the nomination right um it was enough for him to get to that percentage in order so he could make everyone else go away it's not enough to win obviously and i think he forgets that he thinks that all the 46 percent who voted for him are that way and they're not and that's why he keeps going back to that you know back to that well of racism because that's what he thinks you know, uh, well, it was, it was, it's interesting. 2016 was about the Mexicans. 2018 was about the you know Central American caravan. They're coming to destroy you. And he's made this pivot now to 2020, trying to make it about, you know, African-Americans burning cities, you know, when we're Antifa burning, burning down cities who will be coming to your neighborhood. Your right. And they will. Well, do you see did you see that text that they sent out yesterday that if Joe Biden wins, they're coming for your home or something like that? It was. Yeah. Uh, um, but again, in, in, in some ways, I think it's the crudity of it that backfires, that he assumes something. But I have to say how remarkable it is from from my point of view is I remember you mentioned the uh, the autopsy. You know, after 2012, after Romney and, and Paul Ryan lost, there was that was a real moment of introspection among Republicans and led by Reince Priebus. They came up with that right. with that autopsy that said we had to be more inclusive. We, we can't be uh, offensive to immigrants, to women, to young people. We actually have to you know, begin to think about changing our approach and then proceeded to do exactly the opposite. You know, what the Republican Party has done now is almost word for word the bizarro version of the autopsy. Everything in the in the autopsy flipped on its head. And guys like Reince Priebus, who were the architect of that specific document, then flip over and become Trump acolytes. But, but I remember, you know, afterwards, people like Paul Ryan, one of his big initiatives I think he was derailed when he became speaker, but he was he spent some time, you know, going around to central cities and, you know, meeting with black pastors and talking to people in communities and trying to listen. And I think there was the sense that we have to remake the Republican Party. We need to shed a lot of that that past that we have. And yet that whole approach has just been blown out. I mean, yeah. the last four years has been a complete rejection of Ryanism, a complete embrace of, of Trumpism. And it's an extraordinary thing to watch to see it's it's happened, including here in Wisconsin, where we are not an outlier in that in that in that respect. Yeah, well, and it goes back before the autopsy, by the way. I mean, uh, was it two thousand five? I want to say that Ken Namel went to the NAACP and apologized yeah. for the Southern strategy. Right, the, yes. the chairman of the Republican Party said, "I'm sorry for the way mm -hmm. that our party has." run campaigns over the last, uh, what, uh, 30 years, and we're going to try to do better. So the, the autopsy had antecedents in what yeah, grown-ups yeah. in the party knew, uh, understood about the demographics of this country. And the autopsy was, okay, we need to look more like the country like it's going to be in 10 years and in 20 years. And as you say, Donald Trump uh, had no interest in that whatsoever. And there were not enough people in the party to say, no, this is absolutely wrong. We're not going to do this and you're destroying our future. 
And I, you know, and then that's why I say kill the party with racism, because he said out loud all the things that other candidates would only ever hint at or or not and not even feel good about hinting at. You know, I mean, they wanted to win that right. that slice of the of, of the primary voting base, but they didn't want to be like that slice. They didn't want to encourage them. They wanted to win some other way. And in fact, Mitt Romney ran the least Southern strategy type campaign of them all um, and and got beat anyway. And I think that's what a lot of the people who ended up supporting Trump did so because they said, well, we tried with with the nice people and now we're going to have this nasty person and, you know, we're just going to let it all hang out. Um, here you are. Well, I think that's, I think that's exactly what it was. You know, we, we, we tried, we tried uh, being nice. We, we, we tried compassionate conservatism. We tried decent conservatism. Um, we're just going to go with uh smash mouth conservatism and, and that's become, that's become universal. You know, I mean, as, as I, when I was wrestling with this after, after Trump's victory, you know, what I wrote and I, and I'm still sort of there is that I don't know what percentage of people on the right are racist. I can't possibly know, but, but what is obvious is the number who are willing to tolerate the, the, the majority of Republicans who now are apparently willing to accept it if they get other things. Right. And, you know, well, that's not true. It's we don't find it acceptable, except you have accepted it. If you accept something, <laughs> then you regard it as acceptable. That's just the way that that is the way it works. They are willing to look the other way. They are willing to tolerate it. And I think that that's what's been so dramatic and so disillusioning about the Trump era has been that approach. And if they think they can dial that back, I think it's going to be extremely difficult. I just don't know how they do that. Well, I, and some of this is going to depend on on what happens in on November 3rd, right? I mean, if if Donald Trump loses badly and they also lose the Senate, well, that right there is a pretty big repudiation of Trumpism, I think. And 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 I think reasonable people who thought, okay, I was getting X, Y, and Z despite this useful idiot or because of this useful idiot both, well, um, that ended up in my being in this position now, maybe I will learn from this. I I don't know what percentage of of the of the voting bases of the Republican voting base says that versus, by God, we need someone even more like Trump except smarter next time or something. I mean, I that's you know, I'm I'm really curious as to what the tone is of the first folks who go out to Iowa and New Hampshire with, uh, among Republicans after this, assuming Trump loses. I mean, if Trump wins, then, then, you know, I don't even know where to begin because. Yeah. That, uh, that, that's going to where we're at. We're all like, well, we'll, we'll, I, I don't know. I, I think I've told the story on the, uh, on this, on this podcast. I, I keep saying that I'm going to go look it up, but I remember back in 2016, I was doing an interview with the BBC and we were talking about the future of the Republican Party after Trump, you know, after Trump was defeated and everything and how we would have to rebuild everything. And then the guy, the presenter from the BBC asked me, well, what if Trump wins? And honestly, I have to say, I'm very rarely, you know, without words. Yeah. I remember going, I, I, I wonder if it came through that way, because honestly, at that point, it had never even occurred to me. So this is the thing that I constantly am reminding myself just because you think something can't happen does not mean it's impossible. And so, and I think that's the difference between 2020 and 2016, that we realize that the unthinkable is possible because we've lived through it. Yeah. I think part of this is, uh, and w which may be our salvation is most people are decent. Most people don't like you know, mean, nasty viciousness. And I, well, know, we'll find out. We will. But I think that is why one of the reasons uh, Joe Biden did as well as he did, because people said, you know, I'm just tired. I'm tired of exhausted with this fighting. I don't want to fight. I don't want no, Bernie I, I fighting. Right. I just want quiet. I don't want to check my tweets every morning at 530. I, you know, I, by so, the way, I think that you're, you are dead right on that. <laughs> so, you know, we'll I see. Do. Yeah, I know. I think the exhaustion factor is going to be one of the uh, underappreciated factors here. Uh, Sharisha Date, uh, author of The Useful Idiot, the White House correspondent for the Huffington Post. Uh, uh, thank you so much. And the, and the book is out, the, uh, the Useful Idiot, How Donald Trump Killed the Republican Party with Racism and the Rest of Us with Coronavirus. It was published on September 4th. And uh, uh, good to have you back on again. It's been my pleasure, Charlie. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again. There are now 49 days until Election Day.